Travis Shakespeare is the Senior Vice President of Unscripted Programming for BBC Studios in Los Angeles. And yes, that is his real name. He develops shows you might know, like the Emmy Award-winning Life Before Zero, Port Protection, and Top Gear. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, we'll hear about how he caught fire and became the director and executive producer of Playing With Fire, the first ever documentary about the financial independence retire early movement. Plus, Joe and Big Al answer your questions and comments about rental real estate, and they clear up some confusion around Roth 401k income limits and contributions versus conversions. I'm producer Andy Last, and here with our guest, Travis Shakespeare, are the hosts of Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Travis, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Man, you've done a lot of different things. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you were on, what, um, Top Gear. Yeah, I love that show. That is like <laughs> the one of the best shows in the world. And um, what the hell are you doing on Your Money or Wealth? <laughs> <laughs> That's the main got, question we want to ask you. I got a random email. Whenever a financial advisor sends me an email, I always respond. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is... Um, uh, you know what? I'll hold that comment. Yeah, yeah I had something too, but <laughs> usually goes straight to the delete box. Right, sure. Uh, playing with fire. So you go to Top Gear, and then all of a sudden you're thinking, you know what? There's this fire movement, financial independence, retire early. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, hey, there's something to this. So what? You hate your job so much that you're thinking, let me start saving some money so you could be part of the fire movement, or you're just intrigued with how all these individuals are really taking control of their financial lives. Okay, well, that's a lot of questions. I'll tell you how it all... So we got we have thirty minutes. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll tell you how it all started, which was that uh, when I turned forty years old, I was still uh, in forty thousand dollars of student loan debt. Uh, I had credit card debt, and I had no savings account. I had started my career in TV at that point, and I had managed to save up five thousand dollars. And I went into Charles Schwab to a physical branch, and I said, "I'd like to invest five thousand dollars because I'm." ready to start investing. And the guy said, why don't you come back when you've got 50? Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, I am so broke that, like, they won't even take my money. (laughs) Like, it was a massive wake-up call. So I started a search for myself um, to try to educate myself. You know, I came up through the arts, so I thought that I was just going to win the lottery or, like, an Oscar or something and just become magically wealthy overnight. And, you know, when you turn 40 and that hasn't happened yet, you're like (laughs) looking at the bottom of your beer bottle going, I wonder if I had something wrong here. (laughs) (laughs) With such a great plan. (laughs) You know, uh, yeah, exactly. So not a great planner. And I started trying to educate myself and I started reading a bunch of really complicated investment books that I didn't really fully understand. I wasn't a math guy. And I panicked. I just didn't know what to do. But I ran a couple of financial calculators. I saw that my retirement was terribly off track. Right about then is when I came across two things. One was MrMoneyMustache.com, and the other was Early Retirement Extreme, which was a book by Jacob Fisker, a guy who retired on something like $300,000 in his portfolio. I mean, this guy was, when he says extreme, he meant extreme. Right. But it was really fascinating because being a struggling artist, I kind of knew how to live like that, even though I didn't want to. And I thought, oh, well, if I just systematize this, maybe I'll be able to catch up. And so I started my own journey you know, in, in financial literacy. And that led me to going to something called a Chautauqua, 
with the FIRE uh, community down in Ecuador where we spent a week talking about money, talking about investing, talking about values. And I came out of it feeling like a changed man. And I emailed everybody that was there and I said, hey, if I make a documentary about this, will you guys be in it? And they said, sure. And and the rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) A a Chautauqua? Is that what? Yeah. A Chautauqua, yeah. It's like a, I think it's a native word for like a gathering where you kind of hang out and discuss deep, deep stuff. So as an artist, it's either boom and bust, I would imagine, right? It's like you get a little bit of a hit, and then all of a sudden it, it goes dark for a little bit, and then you get a little, you know, so the income fluctuation is is probably fairly volatile. And so at 40, it's like, okay, well, wait a minute, I got to get a little bit more control over this. But it's still in the occupation that you're in, it's hard to save if the flow's not coming in, and then all of a sudden you hit, and then you got to pay back everything that you kind of borrowed to to get you to the next point. What were some of the, the key takeaways that you got from all of this just to now to get you to the point where you're at? Well, you know, one of the key takeaways, of course, it was too late for me, but that I really understand now is that time is your friend, you know, when it comes to investing. And the earlier, even if you're only putting $20 away, you know, at 22 years old, that's better than where I was at, because every 10 years, you basically have to save twice as much money to get to the same place. Yeah, let me ask you about the documentary, because from what I've read about you, you had this idea of doing a documentary for a while, but it wasn't really until you met a a couple by the name of Scott and Taylor that you decided to kind of make this real. So tell us about how all that happened. Yeah, that's right. So um, my day job is I'm, I'm an executive for BBC Studios in Los Angeles. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a career television producer at this point. And I had decided to do the documentary and I sort of dreamed up the, the mood board and like and I cast all of the experts and I, I had it all sort of figured out in my head. But what I didn't have was an organic driver for the story, which I knew that I would have to find. And right at that moment, when I started looking for that person, I got waylaid by my day job to make a new version of Top Gear for the United States. And that just took me into a black hole for over a year in production. And when I started to reemerge, I heard Scott on the Choose FI podcast. And I was like, oh, no, this guy's going to do my movie. <laughs> and I freaked out, you know, and I was like, that's I was so mad. But then I calmed down and I thought, you know, why don't I just call this guy? Because it's he's really interesting and his story is interesting, and maybe there's something here. And so we ended up meeting and having dinner because uh, I was traveling through Seattle where he was with his wife. And we just met and just completely hit it off. And I realized that they had the perfect organic driver for the story, which was basically that they were a high, a very high-spending couple who had been living in Coronado, living the Instagram life, you know, spending every single dime that they made. They were doing well, but they were spending everything that they made. And then they had a kid. And they realized that they were selling their time and like kind of like wage slaves, if you will, to support this lifestyle. And in the meantime, not even being able to spend any time with their own child. And so they sat down and had a long talk about it. And they decided to change their lives and see what they could do with regard to their own financial literacy and changing the way that they approach consumption, basically. And Scott wrote the book called Playing With Fire. Was was that, had he already done that by the time you met him or was he working on it? So Scott's a very industrious guy. Like he's kind of unbelievable. And he was already, he already had the book like in the pipeline when I met him. 
uh, I met him about maybe about six weeks, two months into their journey. The, the funny thing was he decided to put himself in a documentary and just make a film. And he had done some like documentary shorts, but you know, to put yourself in a movie and then produce it and make it, it's really, really difficult. So when I came along and said, I'd love to direct this, he was like kind of relieved, I think. Yeah. I had a chance to listen to the entire book. I was just so engrossed in the story on so the concept, of course, is, is, is spend a lot less than what you're making, save as much as you can, be intentional on what you're spending and all that sort of thing. But to hear his actual experiences, his jubilation of doing this at the start, but the problems of getting Taylor uh, kind of on board, but the pitfalls and the despair and what have we done and all this stuff that I would imagine probably it's a pretty common experience that people go through. Well, I would think so, but I mean, I don't think a lot of people in our society put themselves through a social experiment like that, hmm. you know? Most people are perfectly willing to swallow the line that we're all given every day from advertising and marketing that the whole point of living is buying things, and that is not the point of life, and that's what the FIRE community directly questions, and I think it's really kind of brilliant. You know, a lot of the philosophy that I've noticed in the FIRE movement, I can trace all the way back to Thoreau. You know, Thoreau was a guy who gave up a life of consumption for a life of simplicity in order to investigate what was valuable in his life. And you see that sort of with the Puritans, and there's a lot of other strains. But I think that we've kind of gotten into a place in our world where the marketing and the consumption model is no longer in question. It's just how we do things. And we see that there are major consequences by just swallowing that pill, like climate change, overconsumption, oil crisis. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to sound too lefty about it, but I mean, there are direct consequences in that regard. There's also direct consequences to our lives, right? So every time we choose to spend everything we make means that we are now required to spend all of our time gathering more resources in order to buy more things. It seems simple when you say it like that, but we don't really question that. So what do you think of the financial independence retire early movement? Is a life of simplicity in your future, or do you think that the potential pitfalls outweigh the benefits? More on that with Travis Shakespeare momentarily. In the meantime, click Ask Joe and Al on air at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to share your fire thoughts with the fellas. And then share this podcast episode via email or social media to continue the fire conversation out there in the wild. Watch the trailer for Playing With Fire, read the transcript of this interview, and find links to the Playing With Fire website in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now, more with Travis Shakespeare. With the research and everyone that you've interviewed to make this documentary, and I recognize all the names and everyone that's in your film because we've either had them on the show or I read their books or I follow their blogs, and they were very successful in following their own path to become financially independent at a very young age. However, I think on the other side of the coin, people want to be financially independent, but they might not do the math appropriately, and they might leave a very well-paying job um, thinking that they've found this independence only to realize that they might go flat broke in a very few short years or live a life of frugality. Frug that extreme frugality. Yeah, that yeah. extreme frugality yeah. yes. that they weren't necessarily anticipating. I love the movement. I'm all for it. But then there's also, I think, is there, is there some pitfalls 
that we're not necessarily seeing um, because I think we only might talk to the people that were successful at doing it. Well, and are we taking into account the longevity and how long you're going to live in that early retirement and all of that? Mm-hmm. Okay, that, lots of questions <laughs> yeah. in there, too. Travis, and I asked 55 questions <laughs> at you're once. Really, you're really he really good. does. <laughs> this, really, this, this could great. go all day. <laughs> And I also had eggs for breakfast. <laughs> That's like, good to know. Um, okay, so let's just talk about pitfalls. So first of all, ironically, I haven't met anybody who's failed at pursuing fire as is prescribed by the fire movement, which is an interesting point. I think that the people that practice extreme frugality and are willing to sacrifice by saving enough money for let's say 10 years to retire early and i get what you're saying you know for 40 to 50 years of retirement those people are really special kinds of people they're not your average person right so given that the math that they use does bake in longevity and flexibility so we don't know what the failure rate is so far, there's a lot of people like Vicki Robin, for instance, who retired at 24 years old and is still kicking, you know, and she's fine and doing very well. So I think if you have the right mindset, it is completely possible. That said, I have come to the conclusion in making this film that pursuing financial independence retire early is not necessarily for everyone anyway. For one thing, A lot of people can't imagine what they would do when they stop working. Now, the fire movement will tell you that they don't just retire and go sit on the beach and drink mimosas all day. I mean, they do that for the first like six to 12 months and then they they start, you know, something else, a business, a book, they start writing books, they paint, like they, they find things to occupy their time. And I think of it a little bit kind of like the British agricultural aristocracy who lived on a passive income with agriculture, you know, for centuries in England. And those were the writers and the painters and the aristocrats and the politicians. And that's what they did with their lives. So they didn't not work. You know, that's not the point. I do hear what you're saying about what happens if you miscalculate. And or it's if a the good market qu- doesn't behave as you expect it to either. I mean, they do have contingency plans for all of these things in their calculations. You know, they have a certain amount of cash in reserve to ride out the average bear market, which is something like 18 months. They also have the opportunity to go back to work. A lot of them, you know, even though they say that they're retired, they're willing to go back to work or work part time or do what it takes to be flexible to make sure that they can, you know, carry out their intention. But there's two things that I think are the most valuable that I got from making the film, which is first of all, to consider what you value in life, and that includes your time and how you spend it, is extremely important, and it's not given enough credence in our society. The other thing is that you don't have to become financially independent to benefit from being financially savvy and being financially literate. Because, you know, there's a statistic that says something like half of American families don't have $400 in savings or something. You guys probably know that statistic, right? Yeah, it's, it's pretty it's, business. Yeah, well, two-thirds is a thousand two, bucks. Two-thirds over, is a thousand, yep. Yeah, over over half of the boomers have no money saved for retirement. Right. 
Like that's insane. Yeah, the median balance of a retirement account of someone fifty-five plus is fourteen thousand five hundred. That I mean, it's really insane. And if you think about that from a societal point of view, who's going to pay for these people to retire? I mean, they will exit the workforce, and who's going to pay for that? So, <laughs> just from a social responsibility standpoint, that's kind of outrageous if you think about it that way. You know, I mean, and I feel bad for the millennials in that regard because they're the ones that are going to have to pay for it. Yeah, without question. I mean, it's either going to be higher taxes, there's going to be more, all sorts of different types of programs. Yeah, it's a lot, got, lot lower standard of living, or they're moving back in with their kids, or whatever, right? Yeah, so it's it's a mess. Okay, so questioning what you value in life, number one. And number two, using the tools of the FIRE community, you can achieve a lot of things besides just becoming retired early or financially independent for all time. For instance, you can... Have enough money in the bank that if your car craps out on you, you can get it repaired and not go into a major crisis. You can save a month worth of your income and have some liberty you know, around your financial obligations. If you can save a year of your own income, that liberates your spirit and your mind to begin considering other options. You could take a year off as a sabbatical. You could go back to school and study something that will help you to make more money as you go forward. Or you could make stronger demands at your job. You can go to your boss and, and without fear be like, hey, I'd like to shape my career like this. Or this part of my job isn't working out for me. Can we talk about changing that? And not be afraid that you're going to get fired and never be able to pay for your car payment. You know, if you just take a little bit from each of these individuals, I mean, you can catapult yourself in such a better financial situation, even if your overall goal is not to save 95% of my income and do 16 side hustles and, you know, sleep two hours a night so I can reach this goal. I mean, you can tone that thing way down and you're still going to be probably 60, 70, 80, 90% better financially than most of the population. 100%. One last question for you. Who is your favorite Person on the field, I, I know you probably, it's like your kids, but is there, was there a particular story or particular individual that was uh, most compelling to you? Okay, you're the first person to ask me that. And, you know, I have to say it's Taylor, Scott's wife. She came to the film with such emotional openness and vulnerability, and she allowed me to capture her real journey in a way that is extremely compelling and I think very relatable to everybody that sees the film. I mean, she's clearly the standout star, to tell you the truth. We're all going to feel like Taylor. We're all going to be going, no, I don't want to give up my all the things that I like in my life. Well, she, yeah, she didn't want to give up her BMW. That took a while. And she wanted yeah. to get the, the house and Ben. Well, do the, you want to give away the movie? Yeah, oh, really? No, it's the book. It's already oh, out. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, I, I, I got a follow-up question, then, and I promise it, it'll be the last of the thousand questions I've asked you today, Travis. <laughs> Is it a multi-question? It, it's, it's 14 <laughs> questions in one. <laughs> got it. <laughs> As you were doing your research, I think you started out by saying, hey, I'm 40 years old, have five grand, no one wants to help me, the, the, the big brokerage firm, so I got to get this stuff done on my own. Mr. Money Mustache, you started following him, and then probably other financial blogs and reading financial books. When you were reading these blogs and finding your financial path, and then you met them in real life, was there... And you don't have to name names. 
<laughs> was there anyone that you're like, yeah, you're full of it, you're not coming on, or were surprised when you actually met them versus the learnings that you might have learned from them? <laughs> I got to think about that. Yeah. That's a that's a really deep question. I also just it just also occurred to me that that I probably threw Schwab under the bus when I told that story. Oh, Schwab sucks. We don't like Chuck. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't Schwab as a company. It was like the one guy that worked there. Yeah, it was probably... his, his name was Carl Mitchell. I know what branch he's in. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, listen, the people that I've met in the fire community, especially the core. I would say the core founding group, because there's a lot of people who come along since the movement started gaining steam and sort of like started writing their own stories and stuff. So I haven't met everybody, but that core group are really, truly remarkable people. I mean, they are, they're kind of renegade in their attitudes to the way our lives are constructed. And I have a lot of gratitude to them to tell you the truth. They're, are definitely like some kind of wacky characters in the fire <laughs> community. You know, they're they're unusual people. I mean, a lot of them are first of all, a lot of them are like computer nerds and engineers and so they're very very like left-brained and they can tear up a spreadsheet like nobody's business, you know. And so they're kind of have that engineering nerdy quality that's kind of endearing, I think. But very different from like you know the highly emotional crazy people that I deal with every day in Hollywood. <laughs> well, you got both extremes. <laughs> exactly. So the cool thing is the fact that this film is going to be premiering here in San Diego on Saturday, June first, and it's already sold out. Then the showing in San Francisco is sold out. The showing in London is sold out. From there, they continue on to D.C., Detroit, Seattle, New York City, Atlanta, and Travis. I understand people can actually book screenings of their own as well. Yeah, if you go to our website, which is playingwithfire.co, C-O, uh, we have an organization that will allow anybody to mount a screening in their local community. So it's kind of a grassroots option. If you can get 70 people to agree to buy a ticket, this organization will mount a screening. We're trying to go to like the big cities ourselves and do Q&As and, and appear with some of the cast and things like that in the major cities. But even the smaller communities are starting to mount screenings as well. It's truly a grassroots effort, and it's very excited. And I am excited that I'm going to be at the San Diego screening. Yay! Looking forward to seeing you and uh, the guys from Choose FI and Scott and Taylor and the whole whole crew will be there in, uh, at the Lyceum Theater in San Diego. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. I'm really glad you were able to come. I did make this movie for people who were financially illiterate like I was, and I'm really grateful that you guys are helping to spread the word because I'm looking to start a financial literacy revolution in this country. I really... I really worry for like the kids that work for me and stuff, you know, they're just, it's just crushing what they're going to have to deal with. Yeah. It's like save as much as you can, <laughs> as early as you can. And let's hope for the best. So check it out at playingwithfire.co. Yes. Playingwithfire.co. That's uh, Travis Shakespeare, folks. Thanks so much, Travis, um, for tolerating <laughs> All these questions. This awful multi, program. Multi-layered questions. He's probably like, oh my God. This is the first time I ever had to <laughs> go through this. Such... It was it was a little agonizing, but you know, you guys are you guys are charming enough. At least, I, at least I, you're I you're honest. Um I should just say too that we're gonna start pre-sales of the film uh, you know, on TVOD, Vimeo, iTunes, and all that stuff as well. So if you're interested, go to the website and the information will be there as well. Awesome. Playingwithfire.co. That's uh, Travis Shakespeare, folks. 
You know, Big Al is so excited about playing with fire that I've decided I'm going to give him my second ticket rather than taking my husband to the sold-out show. So listen to the podcast next week to hear all about it. And make sure you follow us on social media to see the pictures. Find all the links you need in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. And you know, whether financial independence and early retirement are in your future, or if you're planning a more traditional retirement, the fact is how you spend your time when you're done with your 9 to 5 is just as critical as making sure you've got enough money. So while you're in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, download one of our most popular free resources, the Retirement Lifestyles Guide. It'll give you some ideas on making the most of your retirement or early retirement. You'll see the banner right there at the top of the podcast show notes page at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now let's get to your money questions and comments. Scroll all the way down and click Ask Joe and Al on air at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to send in yours. So Greg writes in. He's um, from L.A., Los Angeles, California, just right up the street. I own a property in SoCal. And that's what I'm guessing what S period California is. I think is. so, yeah. I'm close to 64, yo. <laughs> You're old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yo. Yeah. Hey, yo. I'm close to 64. Years old. Oh, that's what that means? <laughs> I think so. And I'm considering various options for this property. It's current status, rental unit. Okay. Uh, Number one, sell. Number two, pass ownership to my son. Three, moving back in. The end. The end. (laughs) So which which one's better? (laughs) Well, he's 64, yo. Yo. (laughs) And he's considering various options for this property. I don't know. What the hell, Greg? Are you writing us? And just, did you fall asleep? (laughs) He forgot to the question. He forgot to ask a question. But I will address all three. Okay. With a premise. Uh, and the premise is, Greg, do you, do you need this property for your retirement? If so, don't give it to your son, right? If, in other words, if you need a place to live, then live in it. I mean, make sure you're covered first before you start thinking about giving this away. But we can, I can address all three. If you sell it, then uh, it looks like you, you say moving back in. So I guess it was a residence. It was your residence at one point. So I don't know when, yeah. when you did that. If, if it was recent and if you sell it and you happen to live in it two out of the last five years, even though it's, it hasn't, you haven't lived in it for a while, then you, as a, if you're single, you get a $250,000 gain exclusion. If you're married, it's a $500,000 exclusion. You would have to pay depreciation recapture? Correct. You'd have to pay depreciation recapture, which basically means when you buy a, a rental property, you figure out how much is land, how much is building, and the building part, building part you get to slowly write off as an expense over 27 and a half years for residential property. And so to the extent that you, even if you have this exclusion because you qualify for two out of the last five years, you still have to pay tax on depreciation recapture. In other words, the tax deductions that you took before now are income and you have to pay tax on them. So so yeah. that, so that's that's one way to think about this. But Greg, if, if you had not lived in it or if it was past five years ago, right. Um, then you look at what the cost basis is, what the gain is, and then you would pay ordinary or you would pay income tax on that or yeah. capital gains tax. Yeah, let, let's say you bought the property for two hundred thousand, and you the, the depreciation you already took that you wrote off was fifty thousand. So now your tax basis is is a hundred. What did I say? Yeah, hundred fifty thousand. Hundred fifty thousand. And let's say you sell it for four hundred fifty thousand. So then there's a three hundred thousand dollar capital gain. Some of that 
$150,000 of that is depreciation recapture, which is taxed at, at uh, either your tax rate or, or 25%. Uh, and the, the other part is long-term capital gain, which can be taxed at zero, 15%, or 20%, depending upon your tax bracket. Is it um, your tax rate or 25%, whatever is higher? Whatever is lower, okay. actually. yeah. Wow, there's a little bit of... There's a little break. California, they have different... Um, capital gain rates? No. Uh, different rules when it comes to... Uh, the 121 exclusion? No, same rules. Same rules. So you get the same exclusion in California. So that's if it were if it if you're trying to sell it and and so either you lived in it two out of the last five years or you didn't. If you pass the ownership to your son, great. But now it's no longer your asset, so it's no longer part of your retirement. If you don't need it and your son needs it and you want to do that, great. But what's ha- what happens when you do that is your original cost basis transfers over to your son. And if he sells it, then he'll have to pay the capital gains. Now, if he lives in it two out of five years, then he can do the same exclusion, 250000 single, 500000 married. So, but yeah, you'd only do that if you don't really need it. And then also that would be a gift, so you would have to just look out for gift tax return and things yeah, like that. Yeah, so r- correct. So right now you can give $15,000 to any recipient per year, and if it's more than that, you file a gift tax return. You don't actually pay taxes. All, what happens is you reduce your exclusion, uh, uh, your estate tax exclusion when you pass away. And I guess the third one, moving back in, Great, if, if you want to. I mean, we don't know. There's no other details. Yeah, it doesn't give us any idea how come he doesn't want to keep it as a rental unit either. Well, he just owns a property in SoCal, yo. <laughs> <laughs> so those are, yeah, those are a few choices, I guess. Um, All right, Greg. Um, hopefully that helps. Uh, f- for future reference, a little bit more detail. Yeah, and actually write us a question. <laughs> Because <laughs> we'll just answer whatever you mean, we feel like. You mean don't just make a statement with no question on the end of it, Al? Uh, yes. Yeah, like I like to do. All right. We got Karen from Oceanside, California. She writes in, hello, Joe and Big Al. I trust your judgment. All right. Thank you, Karen. I have a second home I bought new in 2007 in Albuquerque, New Mexico with approximately $70,000 of equity. Uh, For the past 12 years, I've rented to family members and never claimed the home as a rental. My daughter is now moving out of my ABQ home to California, Albuquerque home. So maybe she goes to KFC (laughs) in ABQ. ABQ in caps. Um, um, Home to California. So I do not want to hassle renting it out to tenants. However, I do have a reputable property management company to fall back on there. Uh, so the question is, since the new tax law has a $12,000 standard deduction for single, and my previous itemized deductions for that home ran under $12,000, I don't see the benefit of keeping the house. Appreciation values are very low and slow there. I don't risk uh, capital gain selling. Uh, with the current rents there, if I calculated correctly, I would only profit about 64 bucks per month after all expenses are paid, including if... I were to start paying for a property management company. Uh, So I'm estimating netting out about $58,000 selling the home. I could maybe invest that towards something else as long as it's not too risky or put the money in the bank for emergencies since my savings is only Um, $6,000. Let's see. uh, 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 Sustaining monthly, just fine with my pension and military health insurance for life. And now that I turn 65, Medicare. 
I own my very updated and renovated mobile home and planning on dying in it. Okay. All right. Hopefully not literally. Well, maybe. I don't know. Um, she's debt free, aside from my ABQ, that stands for Albuquerque. Albuquerque. Yep. Home of a hundred thirty-one thousand dollar loan. Is your opinion to keep the house or sell it? Well, what is sixty-four times twelve? Can I see your calculator, for sir? Sixty-four. That'll be about. What? $768. $800? $768. $768. Okay, $768 divided into 58000 No, that's the equity. The loan is... Uh, well, yeah, that would be the... Right? She's netting 64 bucks a month. Yeah, yeah, The yeah. equity's fifty-eight grand. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, okay. You're, you're correct. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a 1% cash on cash. Okay, 1% cash on cash. 1.3. And then you get probably maybe another one percent appreciation. Yeah, could be. Now, she, her in her experience, she has not received appreciation, but she bought in two thousand seven, which was the height of the market before the Great Recession. The crash, which was the, the crash, wor- worst crash we've had since the Great Depression, and in some areas, worse for real estate. It was worse. The Great Recession was worse than the Great Depression. So I, I would say. Albuquerque historically has appreciated, maybe not in the period of time where you've owned it, but I, I'm not sure that's a correct premise. But the cash flow is only one percent, so that's a, that's so that's not very good. That's not going to do much for your your retirement. Now, the ability to sell without paying taxes that that just simply means you're going to sell it for roughly what you bought it for, because you only pay taxes on gain. And there's fifty-eight thousand dollars of equity. I would probably be inclined to sell it because. If and she mentioned she's got emergency funds of only six thousand dollars, I think that's a little bit light. So to have that extra flexibility, uh, having the capital in retirement, you're not really giving up much cash flow. There's no taxation to sell. You don't even really want the property. Yeah, I think you. I think you sell it. Absolutely. Uh, yep, you sell it. You cash out, Karen, and then you just put that right there in your old savings account. Yeah, don't be too aggressive with it. Yeah, you don't need to invest it. I don't think if if she's living comfortably with her pension, yeah, she's got you know military health insurance. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, and you're chilling. You're gonna die in your your home in uh, good old Oceanside. Yeah, I would sell the ABQ home. Yeah, yeah. So we're in agreement. We got Rob from Santa Clarita, California. YMYW TV season five episode fifteen. Wow. Thank it was entitled the... Get Real with Real Estate. Uh, thank you for the clarification, Rob. I loved it, but I have one comment. There didn't seem to be any mention that it is a great hedge against inflation. So even if I'm getting slightly less than 1% with write-offs for depreciation, maybe over 1%, uh, real estate generally rises with inflation, so it can keep you well ahead of the game. I understand it that is very illiquid, but I was just pointing out another positive. Rob, all right, cool. Thanks for watching YMYW TV, season five, episode fifteen. Yeah, and Rob, I agree with you. I think the uh, real estate is a good hedge for inflation, although it it's local. It depends upon the area. Now, if you're in Santa Clarita, and if your properties are in California, California properties have tended 
over time to appreciate more than some other areas. And in fact, in in excess of, of uh, inflation, inflation sure. certain parts of the country, inflation at best is is kind of. But but it is an inflation hedge. And I think when you're investing in California, it's not so much for cash flow because the cash flow is the prices are so high that you can't charge enough rents to get a good cash flow. In other parts of the country, like Texas, it's a little bit different, where the the properties are they cost they're cheap enough where you can charge enough for rent to make a good cash flow. That's not really the case in California. But what does tend to happen in California over time is the appreciation factor, and and that's how people create wealth in California. But they they tend to when they get to retirement age to try to turn that into a cash flow, they, they tend to need to do something with the property because the cash flow is not that great, meaning they need, they sell it. But they, most people don't, though. They, they don't because they don't understand yeah. that they, they've got this big asset that's not really producing. Right. How it could. Let's say they got a $700,000 asset and it's per, you know maybe it's getting $15,000 net cash flow and they're like, well, hey, this is great. It's 15000 bucks. Yeah, it's like a well, two, 2%. <laughs> yeah, on seven hundred grand, it's right. not all that great. And so what, what I tell folks is when you've done that and just understand what you're doing, you're building your net worth. And if it's for you and your retirement, then you need to cash it in somehow. You don't necessarily have to sell it. You can do a 1031 exchange into a different kind of property that has better cash flow. You can do a charitable remainder trust. You can do all kinds of things to, to sell it and create a better cash flow. But the thing is, if you collect in your example that 15000 per year, well, great. I mean, that's that's a good income, but it's only 2%. And yet your asset maybe is growing at 5% or, or, or more. It just depends upon the, the cycle and the market. If you want to enjoy that, you're going to have to monetize that somehow by a sale or, or exchange or something like that. Otherwise, basically what you're doing is you're making your kids or your beneficiaries Very wealthy. Rich. Because when you pass away, there's a step up in basis. They get to enjoy all that net worth and profit, and then they get to live the life that you actually built. If, if that's your goal, great. Right. But for most of the folks that we talk to, it's like, well, I built this for us in our retirement. Well, then you have to kind of look at other options. Yeah, and it's that's a sticky subject, too, because it's like, well, you know, th- there's such a weird emotional attachment. Yeah, right? sure. To, to, to real estate than it is, you know, to a mutual fund. Right. Well, and particularly if you've done well in real estate and you don't really trust the stock market, it's like, why would I ever do anything differently? Because right. the stock market, it seems like gambling. So I think it's the, the goal is looking at what is the goal for the, the, the asset? Is it for income? Is it for growth? Right. And then I think in California, what you were just alluding to is that I think real estate is a really good asset class more for growth. Yeah, in, in most areas, certainly certainly in the bigger towns. Now, if, if you're out in the middle of nowhere in needles, let's just say, <laughs> or weed in some of these towns that are out there, maybe there's not quite as much appreciation. <laughs> Just guessing. I don't know that for a fact. I'm probably wrong. Needles is probably the fastest growing. Check out the Your Money, Your Wealth TV episode that Rob was talking about. Get real with real estate in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. And you know, if rental real estate is part of your retirement or early retirement plan, I'll also throw in the link so you can download the 10 Tips for Real Estate Investors Guide for free. We've got time now for one more email question. Actually, this one's a comment. You can send either to the fellas just by clicking Ask Joe and Al on air at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and sending us a voice message that we'll play in the podcast, or you can do it the old-fashioned way and send an email right there through the site. Okay, we got Marcos. He's from Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, Thanks for all the education that you provide on your podcast. It's quite entertaining as well. Thanks, Marcus. I'm a new listener. 
it was listening to an older podcast, episode 215. Um, oh, episode 215, that was a pretty good one. Uh, <laughs> that was probably on real estate. Uh, the question asked by a listener related to Roth conversions. Comments were made regarding Roth 401k, Roth IRA, and income restrictions was mentioned. Listeners like myself may have assumed that income limits apply to both Roth IRA and 401k. However, Roth 401k has no income limits, unlike the Roth IRA. This perception could deter someone from contributing to the Roth 401k, thinking that they made too much. Thanks for your time. Marcos, God bless you. My point exactly, Al. These stupid retirement plans with all these stupid Let's rules. Let's get them coordinated so we don't have every single different account has different right. rules. Roth IRA, you have income restrictions. If you make too much money, you cannot put money directly into a Roth IRA. It's about $200,000 if you're married, $140,000 if you're single. That's on the top end of it. If you sure. make more than that, you cannot contribute to a Roth IRA. Unless you do a backdoor Roth. Unless, okay. <laughs> but how about if I have a 401k plan? No problem. Oh, yeah. oh you make... Two hundred grand? Who cares? You can put nineteen thousand. Put in. it in. Twenty five thousand if you're fifty and older. Wait a minute. My neighbor can't do one, what, and I can do twenty five thousand. What is what? I, is I that, thought I made too much money. Well, well, you do for the Roth IRA. Yeah, Roth, you never said four hundred one k. Roth four hundred one k. Oh, oh, different thing. T- totally different thing. <laughs> I'm, it make any sense? Yes, that. because Marcos, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think <clears throat> Al and I get lazy a lot of times because. There's so many different rules with so many different plans. And then we, we make the assumption um, that everyone understands what the hell we're talking about, right? Because we do zero prep for the show. <laughs> if we did more prep, we'd be tight. <laughs> right. <laughs> we would be a lot, <laughs> lot, lot more tight. But in, when we talk about Roths, they're like, well, no. You know, some people will tune out right away because they're like, no, I don't qualify. Sure. Oh, that's not for me. But anyone can open up a Roth IRA. You could convert into it as if you have a retirement account. There's no income restrictions for conversions, but there's income restrictions for contributions to Roth IRA. There is no income restrictions for Roth 401k contributions. Yeah, so that's the, let's go a little slower. Stupid. So, so Roth IRAs, no 401k Roth. This is a Roth IRA. Yeah, there's the income limitations, Joe, that you just mentioned, but a Roth 401k, which essentially is virtually the same thing, except you do it through your pay, through your employer. There's no income limitations there. You could make a million dollars. It doesn't matter. You can put, you can max it out. And right now, that's nineteen thousand uh, dollars, unless you're fifty and older. And then it's twenty-five thousand dollars. So it doesn't matter how much you make or how much your spouse makes or if you're already your spouse is in a retirement plan or not. None of these things matter unless you're a highly compensated employee with a top-heavy. 401k plan. Oh, now you're going <laughs> right. Deep. I mean, yeah, I, you're, I you're right. You're it's right. Bold, it's you're, BS. You're right. You're right. And and so oh. in that particular case, you could theoretically make the full contribution. And after year end, when your third party administrator runs all these <laughs> actuarial <laughs> calculations, they got six people in the back office with glasses and 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 computers, and they come up with this. Oh. You did three thousand too much, and you, so you have to take that back and call it income the following year. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do they do this? I don't know. I don't know. But you're right. It, it's When I teach these retirement planning courses, we talk about Roth IRA conversions. And then it's like, okay, well, here, let's say that your tax bracket's X, and you can go to the top of that bracket, which is Y. And I say, you can convert this much, and let's just assume that's like 25000 bucks. Okay. And then people would be like, well, I thought you can only put you know, seven thousand dollars, six thousand yeah. dollars in the Roth. Well, no, that's a contribution. Well, I make too much money. Well, no, that's a contribution. I'm talking about a conversion. 
And then it's like, well, what, what's a conversion again? Well, no, it's taking money from a retirement account and putting it into the Roth. You pay tax on it. Yeah. Well, the, the two words sound similar. Right. Contribution, conversion. I could see where it'd be confusing. And then, but, but the problem, and I think what Marcos is, is telling us, is helping us out, um, is that, you know what, if, if you can explain things a little bit more, Marcos probably tuned out. But he's smart. He knew the rules, and he understood what we were talking about. But he's like, you know, the average Joe is probably shut your show off. Right. <laughs> well, he Googled it to or, find out the real answer. Right. Or it's like, you know, this is a really good option for a lot of people, but they automatically might tune it out because they don't understand the rules, or they might have heard the rules of saying, oh, I don't qualify for a Roth yeah, because I, mean, I make too much money. How many times have we been that our, people come into our office and we talk about a Roth conversion and the, the person or the couple will say, well, my accountant says I don't qualify. Right. And then we have to say, no, that's a contribution. And then we have to explain. So a contribution is taking some of your money from your savings and checking account outside of retirement and you contribute it to a Roth IRA. That's one way to get money to a Roth. Another way is to convert it. Now, that's totally different. That's taking money that's already in a retirement account that you got a tax deduction, usually, maybe not always, and you convert that. And, and when you convert it, if you got a tax deduction, you, then you have to pay tax on the conversion amount because that's what it would be when you take it out at retirement anyway. And then we get the thing about, well, I'm not 59 and a half yet, so I can't convert. No, a conversion, it doesn't mean like you're putting the money in your pocket. You're just, you're just changing from one kind of retirement account to another kind of retirement account. You simply pay the tax. There's no penalty, but you can do it at any age, whether you're working or not. So if, if I understand this correctly, Al... If I make a contribution, that means it's after tax. I already paid tax on it. Right. Right? And so I put $6,500 or $7,000 into my Roth IRA. It's after tax. I already paid tax on the dollars. It goes into the Roth. It grows tax-free. A conversion is, let's say if I converted $7,000, I convert it, and I pay the tax on the $7,000, and then now it's in the Roth IRA. Tax-wise, there's no difference. Right? Right. So why is... A conversion legal with no income limitations, and there's income limitations on contributions. Um, makes no sense. It, it doesn't make any sense well, whatsoever. The, and the, and it, it, I guess it used to be closer, because it used to be you could only do a conversion if your income was below 100000 Right. Then, then they took that rule away, and it's like, okay, well, that's nice that you took that rule away. Then then let's coordinate the rules so they make sense. Sense. Because they set up these rules that might have made sense way back when, and then they take limitations away to where it makes no sense whatsoever. So th- there should not be an income limitation whatsoever on a Roth IRA contribution. If we want to do the Pension Secure Secure Pension Act, we should say anyone can do a Roth contribution. Anyone. Anyone. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Show us code your money or wealth. Stick around to the very end for this week's derails and check out the video of Joe getting worked up in that last discussion in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You'll also find the trailer and links for the Playing With Fire documentary so that you can schedule your own screening and stoke your own fire. Special thanks to our guest today, the ever so well-read and aptly named Playing With Fire director and executive producer, Travis Shakespeare. Be sure to share this episode far and wide and subscribe to the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast or the newsletter for free at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner, just click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. 
Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. You can go to Your Money, Your Wealth. You can subscribe right there to our pod. Pod. Now it's just a pod. 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 Podcast. It's like, yo. (laughs) I like to say pod. I kind of feel like I'm, you know, in the cool group. When I, I, just, I suppose, yeah. yeah. Is that that's part of being cool? You abbreviate words. Just podcast is the only thing I abbreviate. <laughs> Got it. And yo, <laughs> well, I'm just reading. Yeah, I know. It I does say that. I I am close to 64. Yo, <laughs> <laughs> that's what it, it does. G from Los Angeles. <laughs> Actually, have you noticed that, that a bunch of the companies like Kentucky Fried Chicken went to KFC? A bunch of companies are starting to just go with abbreviations as their names. I think, no, that's the only thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Which one? TB? Taco Bell? Oh, there's, there's another one. I can't remember. MCD? I shouldn't have brought it up. Sorry. Is, is that McDonald's? <laughs> BK? Okay. Actually, okay. Yes, All right. Okay. Yes. We got one. We got, we got two. Yeah. We got two. Uh, JN, JNB? Jack in the Box? <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't think that's working. Yeah. DQ. Yes. Yeah, that, that okay, works. Okay, so we got three. But I think DQ and KFC are owned by the same company. Yum. <laughs> Which makes sense. I think I'm going to start using that ABQ in my repertoire. Is that the, uh, that's probably the airport abbreviation, I bet it you. It might be, yeah. That's probably where that she makes gets sense. that. I doubt it. I bet that's what everyone calls. That is the airport. Uh, okay. See, All right. <laughs> You don't fly. You don't travel much, so you don't okay. really know these things. <laughs> um, what, what? How about Nolo? What's that? Do you mean the airport? No. Or airport? I mean, what's? What? Don't see. She's googling everything here. Well, yeah, that's. K- I've got a computer in front of me. Of course I <laughs> right, am. Well, Miss KFC over here. That everyone's <laughs> going abbreviations. I forget what Nolo is. What is it? You mean Daddy? like Nolo Press? No. What's What's it stand for? Uh, yeah, I have no idea. You gonna enlighten us? No. You guys gonna figure it out? You just made it up. Nolans. No, that's no la. That's what I said. You said no low. No, it's my I've accent. I got a recording of it, Joe. You said no low. I said no low. Which is actually a company that does um, legal documentation. It's not my fault. You guys can't hear when I said no low. Dude. <laughs> as I, soon as I said, I knew it didn't sound right. I heard. I heard. Yeah. I definitely heard no. And that, too. I don't believe that Nola is the airport. It's not. It's, it's a cool way of saying New Orleans. Nolens. Nolens. That's how you say it. The New Orleans airport code is MSY. Of course. Hmm. Anyway. Where the hell is Needles? That's by the Colorado River somewhere. Where the hell is Colorado River? <laughs> it's, it's bordering California and Arizona. You know why California doesn't have a straight line between Arizona and California? It's because the river is not a straight river. Got it. Is that where like Yuma is? Yeah. Here's, here's yeah. Needles. No. Okay. It's it's literally in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I picked it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>